0: I came here from spending two weeks in Korea, and it's uh, a pleasant change to be able to understand a little more of the language and converse a little more readily. And I am thankful to have the opportunity to share together and study from God's Word, both to receive a blessing and hopefully to share a blessing. I'd like to use. This time this morning, since this is Sabbath school time, in a sense, for some study from God's Word, and I I would ask for a a little participation in discussion. Um, I like to ask questions, so I want you to feel free to be able to raise your hand and, and respond If you would like to participate, there's an interesting story that's found in the book Desire of Ages, and I'm going to share just a few passages in regard to that story and then discuss some aspects of it. It's a story about the cornerstone. Now, I'm not real familiar with how structures were built back in ancient times in Israel and in other areas of the East, but apparently the stone referred to as the cornerstone was not a stone put in at the very beginning of the structure. But yet, it was a stone which was vital to the structural strength of the whole unit of construction, the whole building or wall or whatever it was that was being built. And with that understanding in mind, follow along as we look at this story. It starts on page 597 in the book Desire of Ages and goes on for several pages, and I'm just going to share a little bit of the description here, starting on page 597. When the Temple of Solomon was erected, you remember there were several times that sanctuary structures were erected, and this is talking about the one that Solomon built. you remember who designed it? David was the one who designed it. Solomon supervised the construction of it. it, says when it was erected, the immense stones for the walls and the foundation were entirely prepared at the quarry. After that, they were brought to the place of building. Not an instrument was to be used upon them. Now that would be an accomplishment that would even tax today's technology. The workmen had only to place them in position. For use in the foundation, one stone of unusual size and peculiar shape had been brought, but the workmen could find no place for it and would not accept it. It was an annoyance to them as it lay unused in their way. So here was a stone that came along from the quarry with all the other stones, and it was actually in their way. It was an impediment to progress. They couldn't find any place for it, and it was an irritation to them. Long it remained a rejected stone. When the builders came to the laying of the corner, they searched for a long time to find a stone of sufficient size and strength and of the proper shape to take that particular place and bear the great weight which would rest upon it. Should they make an unwise choice for this important place, the safety of the entire building would be endangered. They must find a stone capable of resisting the influence of the sun, of frost, and of tempest. Several stones had at different times been chosen, but under the pressure of immense weights, they had crumbled to pieces. So the stones were tested previous to being put into place, this one particularly. Others could not bear the test of the sudden atmospheric changes, but at last, attention was called to the stone so long rejected. It had been exposed to the air, to sun, and storm, without revealing the slightest crack. The builders examined this stone. It had borne every test but one. If it could bear the test of severe pressure, they decided to accept it for the cornerstone. The trial was made. The stone was accepted, brought to its assigned position, and what do you think they found? It was an exact fit. It fit perfectly. It was the stone designed for that place. In prophetic vision, Isaiah was shown that this stone was a symbol of Christ. Now, I think we're all probably familiar with the application of this story to... Jesus as the cornerstone of the Hebrew economy. I'd like to go to some passages of Scripture. Let's just take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 28. We'll go through quickly several passages of Scripture, and we want to note the application and significance of these passages. And one of the reasons that we're doing this is we want to look at the experience of Israel and how this story of the cornerstone related to their experience. And then we want to look at God's people in the present day and see if we can see any parallels. Is there a cornerstone for us today? What is our cornerstone and how do we relate to it? Isaiah chapter 28 Verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone. What kind of a stone? A tried stone. What does that mean? It's been tested. Yes. It's not an untried stone, but a tried stone. One that's been tested and borne the test. A precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Let's go now to Isaiah 8. Back several chapters to Isaiah 8. Verses 13 through 15. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he shall be for a sanctuary Now, notice this he shall be for a sanctuary who do you think that the Lord is a sanctuary for those who are true hearted but notice now what it also says about the Lord who is a sanctuary but For a stone of what? Stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. You remember how Jesus spoke of himself as a stone. And... He said that upon whoever the stone fell, what would it do? It would grind them to pieces. But he also said that whoever fell upon the stone would be broken. So it shows that there's a stone experience for everybody. It's interesting to note parallels with facing death death comes to everybody we can choose whether to die eternally in the final analysis or we can choose whether to die now and live eternally but die we must we must die to self now or we will die forever in the future all must face that all must face the stone experience either we must fall on the stone and be broken or the stone will fall on us. This was the experience that came to Israel, and it says that it was a snare. It was a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. Let's go now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 3. Here Peter makes an application (coughs) of what this stone is. Starting with verse 3. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone... Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Now here Peter quotes... Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now where is that quoting from? Yes, we just read it a little bit ago. Now, this is uh slightly different from what we read. It said there that he would be what for those who believe a sanctuary, yes. So this here is similar, a similar thought. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, Peter continues on in verse 7, he is precious, but unto them which be what? Disobedient. Disobedient. Now mark that word. We're going to come back to that a little later. Unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallow, the same is made the head of the corner. Now an interesting feature of this is that the stone that was most objectionable, the one that seemed the least needed, that was actually in the way and an obstruction, it seemed that way to the builders, that became the most important stone. You see the, the contrast unto you therefore which believe he is precious but unto them which be disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being what? there's that word again disobedient whereunto also they were appointed now if the stone in the symbolism here is a stone of stumbling to those that are disobedient, who do you think are the people to whom the stone is a sanctuary and a source of strength, consolation, and help? The obedient, obedient, that's right. The contrast here is a stone of stumbling to the disobedient, but a sanctuary to the obedient. Now these are some important characteristics that we want to keep in mind as we go along. It's interesting in looking at the experience of Israel, Jesus pointed out that the builders had rejected the stone. That was pointed out even in the prophecy. And in the story that Jesus told about the vineyard, he followed it up by pointing out to the listeners that the prophecy of Isaiah showed that the stone which the builders had rejected became the chief stone, the cornerstone. And in the experience of Israel, the stone was rejected, but the stone was the stone that was needed to show the meaning of the whole existence of Israel. To reject that cornerstone was to reject the significance of Israel's existence Can we see that? Or is there any problem in seeing that? That To reject that cornerstone was to reject the meaning of Israel's existence. But Israel did not see that. So in rejecting the cornerstone, what actually happened to the builders? Now this part was not brought out in the parable, but the builders ended up being rejected. Israel and the leaders of Israel were the builders, were they not? Is that the application of the parable? What happened to them? By rejecting the cornerstone, they ended up being rejected. So the builders were actually rejected because they failed the test. In a sense, it was a test of the builders to see if they recognized the value of the cornerstone. They didn't fulfill the whole story all the way out as it could have been. The builders could have accepted the cornerstone, they could have recognized it in Israel's experience, but instead they rejected it. Let's go to John chapter 20, verse 19. just a moment about what it means for something to be an offense or a source of stumbling or a snare that means that that it causes people to be misled in, in the spiritual sense that we're talking about here and John chapter 20, verse 19, it says that the same day at evening, that is, this was the same day that the resurrection took place, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled to worship the Lord. Good. I'm glad you're. <laughs> I'm glad you're following. I wanted to see if you were, were following. Yes, it was for fear of the Jews. Now, the reason that we go to this text is that we want to see that the disciples at this point <laughs> did not recognize the value of the cornerstone. Why were the disciples gathered there on the evening of the first day of the week or toward evening for fear of the Jews? Why were they afraid of the Jews at that point? That's right. They had just crucified Christ several days, two days earlier. They expected that Jesus was going to be exalted as the King of Israel and seated upon the throne, but instead... He was crucified. What would happen to his followers? They expected the same fate. And they locked themselves in a room for fear. Now, I think we all can see the application of the story and the parable of the cornerstone, the application of the cornerstone in the experience of Israel. What did the cornerstone represent? I hardly need to ask the question. (laughs) It represented Christ as the Messiah. The builders, leaders and teachers in Israel, did not recognize and accept Christ as a Messiah, even though they were convicted of that many times by the Holy Spirit. They had started down a track of opposition and resistance, and pride would not allow them to yield to conviction. They would not accept that Jesus was the Messiah, even though they had no explanation for many of the things he did, other than the fact that it was in fulfillment of the prophecies that showed what the Messiah was to do. But they would not accept it. They were determined to resist it. And they felt that they could safely do that because they were God's chosen people and God would not throw them, not cast them off. He could not reject them because they were his chosen people. So they felt they could reject Christ. They did not recognize that by rejecting him, they were rejecting the cornerstone. Now what about the disciples? They were gathered in this room for fear of the Jews. Did they recognize that Christ was the cornerstone? Well, in a sense, even though they didn't think of it that way, they had accepted him as the Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah much the same as the rest of Israel, one who would set up a kingdom and exalt the nation of Israel, one who would be at the head of the armies and give them victory over the Romans. They were gathered in that room for fear of the Jews because they thought the same fate would come to them. Now you recall the story of the two disciples who were on the road traveling back from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Were they happy that prophecy had been fulfilled? Did they see evidence that this actually Proved, this was conclusive proof that Jesus was the Messiah, the fact that he had been crucified. Could they see that? No, they couldn't see that at all. To them, it looked like proof that he wasn't the Messiah because you remember what they said in conversation when Jesus, unbeknownst to them, fell in walking with them? They said, We trusted that this had been he that would deliver Israel. They had thought he was going to be the one, but now it was obvious that it looked like he wasn't. So they didn't recognize that this was actually evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. Now at what point did the disciples come to recognize that the crucifixion of Jesus actually was proof that he was the Messiah? Yes, for those two disciples, where did Jesus begin? Did he perform a supernatural miracle and say, well, here I am, I'm the Messiah, and I was the one who was crucified? So you can see now that... Yes. He began where we oftentimes fail to begin with people. We want to prove something to people in a way that will almost supernaturally overwhelm them. Well, where did Jesus begin? He began with the things they were familiar with, and he pointed out their real meaning. He began with Moses and the prophets. He established their faith not by some supernatural demonstration, but rather on the basis of Bible teaching. He established their faith on that before he revealed himself to them. And after he had gone through all those prophecies, he said, You were slow of heart. Didn't you recognize that this was supposed to happen? This is actually confirmation that he was the Messiah. If he hadn't gone through these experiences, if he hadn't been persecuted and opposed, if he hadn't died, then we would be lacking the most conclusive evidence that he's the (laughs) Messiah. So the very thing that caused the disciples to have fear in their hearts and to think Jesus wasn't the Messiah was actually proof that he was. We see here the the great contrast. And this is an essential characteristic of the cornerstone experience. The thing that seemed to show that it was not needed was actually the thing that showed that it was the cornerstone when we make the application to the experience of Israel. Now, there's an interesting statement in Desire of Ages going back again to page 597 that brings us down to our present experience as Seventh-day Adventists. I'm wondering how many of you that are here this morning are lifelong Seventh-day Adventists. How many of you are? Okay, some of you are. I also am a lifelong Seventh-day Adventist. And my father was and his father and his grandfather he goes back several generations and I'm not sure that there's any kind of inherited Disposition to have more of an interest in Adventism because of past generations. We definitely know that there's no inherited favor with God because of past generations. But whatever the case, I've had a strong interest in understanding the purpose and the meaning of the existence of the Advent movement. The reasons God has brought the Advent movement into existence and his purpose and mission. And this statement caught my attention because of that. The bottom of page 597, referring to this cornerstone incident, it says that the incident was connected with the building of the first temple, that is, one with Solomon. And while it has a special application at the time of Christ's first advent, that's the one we've been looking at, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It says, while it has a special application to that, it also has a lesson for us. Now, what do you think the lesson for us is? Probably the first time or two I read over that, the natural thought was, well, the lesson for us is that we shouldn't reject Jesus as a cornerstone. That seems pretty obvious. But is that what this is talking about? Is this saying we shouldn't make the same identical mistake the Jews did and reject Jesus because He was crucified? I don't think that's really what the statement is saying. I think it has something more implied there for us. It says it also has a lesson for us. What do you think the lesson for us is? Anybody want to venture? the, rest of, the rest of the Christian world? all right there's it definitely conveys the thought there's a rejection of something important and we could probably see several different applications of that principle in it pardon we could reject, we could reject the message just like ancient israel we can't so Okay, so there could be a danger that we would miss what the real meaning of the message the Lord has given us is and actually end up rejecting it? Yes. 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 The biggest likelihood for that is that we um, take on board what the other Christians are holding, which isn't quite accurate. Yes. Yes, now now, how many of the people in the Jewish nation were ready to stand up and say, I'm going to reject the Messiah? <coughs> no, absolutely not. The disciples of Jesus who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, along with the rest of Israel, they were looking for the Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah. They had studied the prophecies about the Messiah. They could expound upon them. Jesus sent them forth teaching that the kingdom is at hand but in their teaching they were presenting thoughts who were not exactly accurate yet Jesus worked with them and he sent them forth to teach and arouse the interest of the people so the people didn't perceive themselves as rejecting the message God had given to Israel they were actually holding on to it they thought By rejecting Jesus. Remember what Caiaphas said? He said it's better for what? It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. He thought he was protecting the interests of Israel and its standing before God by rejecting Christ. But in reality, he was rejecting anything and everything That would give Israel any continued meaning for its existence. The one thing that Israel depended upon more than anything else for its further usefulness in God's plan was rejected. Do you think there's any possibility of of a lesson of that kind of order for us as Seventh day Adventists? If so, in what direction would it lie? What do you think is the most significant purpose or teaching or expectation of Seventh-day Adventists today? Is there anything that compares with the expectation of the Messiah? Now, we expect Jesus' second coming, but most of the rest of the Protestant world is looking for a coming of Jesus as well. Do you think there's anything more peculiarly significant <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists. Yes? The of the 144,000. Alright, the ceiling of the 144,000. Any other ideas? The basic idea, the basic truth that the cross truly and fully restores the, the redeemed to the glory of God. Alright, alright. Because that's the same thing. Yes? The yes. Sabbath and the coming Sunday morning. Alright, the, the issue of the Sabbath is a test. For God's people. There aren't too many people that hold that kind of an idea outside of Seventh-day Adventism. Yes? Uh, maybe the righteousness by faith message. Alright, now that's real interesting. You know, if you go to uh, most other Protestants, I live in a, a section of the United States called the Bible Belt, and it's called the Bible Belt because there's a lot of uh, different varieties of Baptists. There's Independent Baptists and Missionary Baptists and Free Will Baptists and some other Protestant denominations. And there are little churches down almost every little side road through the mountains, around the corners. And sometimes on Sunday mornings, I have been walking or, or going by a church out on the road as far as from here to the building over there. With the windows and doors closed, I could still hear the preacher preaching out on the road. And he was preaching about how if you don't get saved, you're going to hell. And, you know, the hellfire and damnation uh, type of thing. And I could go to those people and I could say, do you believe in righteousness by faith? And they would say, yes, sir. Brother, we believe in righteousness by faith. You believe in God's righteousness and you're saved by faith. Yes. Um, yes, the Christ is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. All right. I think now we're going a direction where we're <laughs> narrowing things down. To something that is very definitely distinctive to Seventh-day Adventism. Yes. In the days of Jesus, it was taught that the the church would go through trials. Now, many of the Sunday churches, they don't believe that we're going to be tested through trials. You know, and there's a difference in Seventh-day Adventism. Yes. We're going to be tested. Very definitely, there are tests and trials for God's people. And that is something that is not recognized oftentimes. Sometimes people accept Christianity as a way of, of having God's special favor to help protect you from trials. It's like now you've got somebody on your side with supernatural power that will exercise that to help make things easy for you. I see any other hands. Yes. Yes, judgments. Yes? Outside. Okay, obedience. Obviously, that's going to have a part in it because the passages we read earlier mentioned that the cornerstone was a, an offense and a stone of stumbling to who? The disobedient. Indicating that the obedient are the ones who recognize the value and receive the benefit of the cornerstone. Okay, yes. Now, we've had the role of the Saviour as High Priest mentioned. Yes. Yet I must confess that the Catholics themselves believe he is that. But, while they have a post-Advent Day of Atonement in Heaven, we have a pre-Advent. And that bites. Yes. That really does bite, even us. Yes, let's consider for just a, a moment the things that are most distinctive to Seventh-day Adventism. What kind of teachings do we have that are not held by by many, if any, other Protestant groups? Yes, the three angels' message, 23,300 days, the sanctuary... I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear these kind of answers. You know, sometimes I've asked that question, and the first answer I get is the state of the dead, the Sabbath. Now, those are distinctive, but there are other groups that believe in those teachings. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses are strong believers in very much the same or similar belief that we have on the state of the dead. In fact, there were back in North Carolina, near where I live, at the State University. There was a Greek professor, who was a Christian, who believed in the uh, common concept of, of life, soul life after death. And he had a debate with a Jehovah's Witness and became convinced that the Bible teaching was that when a person dies... They're totally unconscious, and they sleep in the grave until the resurrection. So he was convinced of that by a debate with a Jehovah's Witness. I also had a, a friend who went to an Adventist academy where I went. I knew him as a student there. He was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home, and he eventually left Seventh-day Adventism and was out in the world for a while, and then he started searching again he came back to Adventist church services and he searched around and he ended up having studies with some people from the worldwide church of God who back at that time also believed about the Sabbath they have changed some of their positions more recently but they were strong promoters of the seventh day Sabbath and he told me after some period of time studying with them, and I think he may have even become finally a member of the worldwide Church of God. He told me, he said, I heard uh, presentations and proofs and, and things supporting the Sabbath that I never heard in Adventism. He felt like they had a stronger position supporting the Sabbath than what he had been familiar with in Adventism. So there are other people promoting concepts about the state of the dead about the Sabbath but now when we come down to the three angels messages the heavenly sanctuary the priestly ministry of Christ we narrow things down quite a bit do you know of any other denomination or group outside of the context of seventh day Adventism that has a teaching regarding the three angels messages I have talked with many people in The remnant Catholics. I'm not familiar with them. The Roman Catholics. In the book The Thunder of Justice, they talk about the three angels' messages. Okay, I have have not run into any groups so far that uh, even had any concept of the three angels' messages. So here there is, uh, and that's probably a more recent development from the Marian movement. So... Yes, I think they have they ha- have a concept of a development of a last generation and, an, and a judgment also if if I recall correctly. But interestingly, for a, quite a long period of time, especially seventh-day Adventists have been the only ones with a concept of the three angels' messages, but now the three angels' messages is still pretty broad. and and somewhat vague and we can see that there are now arising concepts outside of Adventism relating to three angels' messages. Are we really, really getting to the core of what is the most distinctive thing about Adventism? What do the three angels' messages teach us? Let's, Let's start narrowing it down a little more. All right. It teaches victory over sin, but that's been taught from the beginning of the Bible, hasn't it? Or the the three angels' messages say that there's something brought to view that's the gospel for the last days, a development never before fully presented. Is that not correct? What is it? All right. The hour of judgment has come. Why is the judgment taking place then? Many of you have heard. And that is, I'm talking about in the last days of verse history. Many of you have heard of the developments with Desmond Ford and with others who have been promoting the idea that the judgment took place at the cross. That's a common belief in Reformation theology, that when you accept Christ, that you are now in Christ, and that judgment came upon all sinners in Christ, at the cross. That Christ took his righteousness to the cross and answered all the claims of God's law and met the requirement of justice and that when we believe in Christ, that we are in him and we pass the judgment by virtue of what Christ did back at the cross. So they see the judgment as taking place back at the cross. So here we are making a major distinction right away by saying that we have a message that announces that the judgment is now to begin or to take place that immediately rejects the idea that the judgment took place back at the cross and was finished then that's yes why the sanctuary is rejected. all right that's a that's a key factor in the resistance to the sanctuary message because the sanctuary message focuses on a judgment now another interesting thing that I think we need to be aware of is that when we are talking about the judgment, some of these folks who have the Reformation theology, they will say, yes, we believe in a judgment different from the judgment at the cross, but they will not call it an investigative judgment. Do you know what they call it? It's a a term that's becoming more widely and widely used in Adventism, a pre-Advent judgment. Did you know there's a difference between pre-Advent judgment and investigative judgment? In the spirit of prophecy, we don't find the term pre-Advent judgment. What term do we find? Investigative Investigative judgment. That's the name God identified the judgment by, investigative judgment. But now it is becoming more and more common and popular to call it a pre-Advent judgment. I didn't realize there was any difference until I was reading Desmond Ford's Glacier View manuscript. He published that subsequent to all of the developments back in the early 1980s and made it available publicly. I purchased a copy and in reading through it I found a discussion of the pre-advent judgment and investigative judgment, and he said he categorically rejects the concept of investigative judgment, but he says he believes in pre-advent judgment. I thought, well, what's the difference? And he explained the difference. The investigative judgment is an investigation of God's people, of those who have professed to be God's followers. Pre-advent judgment, he views as being a judgment of those who have rejected Christ. The judgment in, in that concept, the judgment of those who are believers in Christ, took place at the cross. But pre-advent judgment determines the outcome for those who are lost that have rejected Christ. And so there's a great danger in us not recognizing the importance of the terminology that the Lord has given us and recognizing what it stands for. Yeah. Investigative judgment. What does that term mean? There's two words there. First of all, investigative. What does the word investigative mean? Yes, an examination. Does the term pre-advent judgment in any way give you the idea that there's an examination? Now, there's very little inference of a, an examination, but investigative Judgment definitely gives you the connotation of an examination, an investigation, a scrutiny. And what does the word judgment mean in this context? Yes, a decision, a sentence. It means a conclusion is reached, an investigation that results in a conclusion. Let's keep developing this a little more. We're, we're down, narrowing down now the three angels' messages with a focus on the judgment and on examination and investigation and on conclusion. Can we narrow it down any more <clears throat> to what's most distinctive about Seventh-day Adventism? There are other churches that believe in judgment. There may even be some that believe in, in the judgment of all people. Those who are followers of Christ as well. The sealing? Yes. All right. The sealing, that's getting close. What, what happens to those who are sealed in the judgment? What kind of experience? To the, all right, the blotting out of sins the washing of their robes as it speaks of in revelation 22:14 and other passages in revelation the blotting out of sins do other religious groups or denominations believe in the blotting out of sins yes, yes. okay yes and no <laughs> no they don't believe it the way we believe that's right what what kind of concept do people generally have about the blotting out of sins? sins Yes. 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 That when you ask forgiveness for your sins, Jesus blots them out. That's the common understanding of the blotting out of sins. And it's surprising to find out that that is is an understanding that many Seventh-day Adventists have. But is that the teaching of the three angels' messages? The three angels' messages puts a whole new construction upon what probably could have been logically believed previous to 1844 about the blotting out of sins. And it separates Seventh-day Adventism from all other groups. (coughs) What do Seventh-day Adventists believe, or maybe I should say, what does the three angels' messages that the Lord has given to Seventh-day Adventists teach about the blotting out of sins? When does it take place? Yes. Yes. When the times of refreshing shall come. All right, let's look look at that. Acts 3.19. I think all of the answers I heard were correct, but this helps to identify on a scriptural basis. It shows, just like it says in the Spirit of Prophecy, that truths that have lain unseen and unheeded since the time of Pentecost will be brought back to their right position in the last days. These things were understood at least in part because they were mentioned at the preaching of the time of Pentecost. Acts 3.19 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be what? Blotted out. Now notice, repent ye therefore and be what? Converted. Okay, when is that? For those people. When are they to repent? Yes. Right at, at that point. That's a call to do it then isn't it? Not to wait for 10 years. 15, 20, 30, 70. It's a call to do it now. And that's true for us as well isn't it? Repent now. And be converted when? Again now. It's present tense. Repent now and be converted now that your sins what, may be blotted out when times refreshing shall come. Now, there are different uh, things we could look at on the construction of the, the uh, grammar there. Some translations, the New English Bible and some others, I think, translate it so that the times of refreshing can come. But in any case... It connects the blotting out of sins with the time frame of the times of refreshing. Now, is that present or future at the time that this verse is spoken? Future. is future. The times of refreshing spoken of there are the times of the latter rain outpouring of the Holy Spirit the blotting out of sins is clearly something different from initial forgiveness that comes in repentance and conversion seventh-day Adventism brothers and sisters was raised up to make clear that distinction and to show the world the necessity the importance and the preparation for the blotting out of sins't oh, uh, you think that our Church and among the remnant of his people, which is yourself, many of us here, don't you think the Lord had said in his word and just that there is other sheep which is not of this bull? Because a lot of us have a lot to be desired to make our name be, and the name of Christ represented among the God. Yes. Well, the the point that I wish to focus on here is that this is what God has raised up, the Advent movement, for to present to the world. And it's up to us individually to decide, do we want to identify with what God is trying to do today? Do we want to identify with the message he wants given to the world? And there are a lot of perplexing questions that we may have to face in how we relate personally to Many developments taking place or situations. One thing is certain that though we though there may be other sheep not of this fold, that may be true, we know that Jesus they will hear his voice. And that voice is connected with the three angels' messages. And those that are not of this fold will come through those three angels' messages. Yes. They will not be a part and be part of the fold. They must hear the loud cry. They must hear this warning. Accept the messages and come in under God's hope. Now yes. That, now that we know for sure. Yes, the I'm reminded of the passage in Volume Eight of the Testimonies, or Volume Nine. I remember reading some time ago. It said that that the truth will triumph gloriously, and all those who are faithful to it will triumph with it. And we need to be identifying. What is the truth that God has given? Now, in the few minutes that remain before we close, let's look now, I think we have narrowed things down much more distinctly to what's distinctive about Seventh-day Adventism. Would you all agree? Let's look at how this could relate to what our cornerstone is. Now, we've identified some key important areas in regard to the three angels messages the heavenly sanctuary the judgment the investigative judgment the blotting out of sins which is a vital part of the meaning of this the investigative judgment now I want to come from just a little different direction for a moment To come to the same point, what teaching in Adventism do you think most Seventh-day Adventists, and we can even look at our own understanding, would have the most difficult time trying to substantiate, support, and prove to other Protestants? Do you think it would be the Sabbath? No. Do you think it would be the State of the Dead? no yes again it comes back to the sanctuary well what part if we say well we believe there's a sanctuary in heaven I think we can show enough Bible texts that most people would probably say well yes I can see that it would be the, the, the blotting out of sins and um, Jesus' mediatorial ministry to put those sins back on Satan alright Or, or believe it was all accomplished with the cross so alright yes um, I, was, we, I was reading what she says in, in the book early writings where she says how um, God's people especially for this time we have to have what's called the most holy place experience because that, that's where we yes. are now in the present truth isn't it yes, you know, yes. In the, he's in the final throes of Finishing the work in the most holy place. Yes. Yes, I wish we had time to read some passages from Great Controversy. You know, there's a whole chapter called The Investigative Judgment. And probably of most, all the things I've read in Adventism outside of early pioneer writings, but most of the things presently, I have yet to read any clearer exposition of The Investigative Judgment than what you can find in the chapter in great controversy on the investigative judgment. <coughs> uh, just to illustrate the fact that this is one of the, the places where Seventh day Adventists usually feel the most uncomfortable trying to support the teaching of Adventism. I think we could we could point to an example that took place several years ago. There was a, a widely televised interview that took place on the Ankerberg Show back in the United States in the state of Tennessee, the John Ankerberg Show. And the editor of the Adventist Review met with Walter Martin, one of the most prominent evangelical Protestant proponents of traditional Reformation theology. One who had been knowledgeable of Seventh-day Adventists and was quite heavily involved in the discussions back in the 1950s that resulted in the book Questions on Doctrine being published and all of the consequent (coughs) upheaval that took place in Adventism. Walter Martin, from that acquaintance with Adventism and background and closely following many of the developments that took place, was on a televised interview with the editor of the Adventist Review, And Walter Martin, in his unique way of driving things down to the point of major conflict, he led the discussion along to the point of getting to the investigative judgment and the teachings found in the writings of Ellen White and, of course, he as as many are doing today said this idea of the investigative judgment is based on Ellen White's interpretation of the Bible. You can't find it in the Bible anywhere. And it led into a discussion of the blotting out of sins and finally he turned upon the editor of the Adventist Review and he said, "Are your sins blotted out?" How'd you answer that? No. Publicly on television. <laughs> there was a long pause. And again, are your sins blotted out? And finally, they're taken care of. That was the best answer that could be brought forth at that point. They're taken care of. And I think that illustrates that, that we have a problem oftentimes showing clearly what the real meat of Seventh-day Adventism is. If we are to ask most Seventh-day Adventists today, most people who would identify themselves as believers in the three angels' messages, can you give a clear study on the blotting out of sins? Most would probably not be able to do so. Does this lead us to any development of understanding about what might constitute our cornerstone today. The developments of the concept of investigative judgment, the blotting out of sins, the work of Jesus as a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, a final atonement separate from the atonement accomplished on the cross. All of these things trace back to the rise of the Advent movement in 1844 and the great disappointment that drove people to study the heavenly sanctuary in the realization that the earth was not the sanctuary the great disappointment of 1844 drove the people to the realization that there was a heavenly sanctuary and consequently they're opened up to their understanding the realization of Christ's mediation of final atonement in connection with the most holy place ministry of christ the work of Christ as a high priest in contrast with the work of the common priests. There's a very significant difference. The high priest was the focus of attention one day each year. And what day was that? Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. That was the Day of Atonement. And the realization that the antitypical Day of Atonement began in 1844. All of these things constitute a cornerstone for Seventh-day Adventists today. And we need to ask ourselves the question, has this cornerstone (coughs) been a stone of stumbling? Has it been a rock of offense? Has it been an irritation? Has it been an obstacle? Have people tried to get it out of the way and said, we don't need this, it's extra baggage? Will it one day be shown to be the very thing that's needed to establish Adventism's claim to have a message to give to the world? That's a question I think we should study more in our our personal study time. I would like to read one passage from the book Great Controversy in closing. page 488 Satan invents unnumbered schemes to occupy our minds how many? unnumbered Unnumbered. that means too many for us to number and we all have to deal with those every day unnumbered schemes to occupy our minds. Now why is he trying to occupy our minds? It tells us it tells us that they may not dwell upon the very work with which we ought to be best acquainted. Now what is that work? Let's read on. The arch deceiver hates the great truths that bring to view an atoning sacrifice and an all powerful mediator that's his work as a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary says he hates these great truths he knows that with him everything depends on his diverting minds from jesus and his truth i'd encourage you to read the rest of the page there in the light of our discussion here this morning now i want to read just across the page one more sentence or two The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Adventists were raised up to give that message to the world. What are we doing with it today? (coughs) Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, truly thou art merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in mercy and grace. And we want to thank thee for thy great patience and long-suffering with us. We want to ask thy forgiveness for oftentimes not recognizing the unnumbered schemes of Satan, for oftentimes being diverted, and distracted from the very truths that we need to understand best and be best acquainted with. But I'm thankful that there is still a time of opportunity, a time for study, a time for reflection, a time for growing in grace, a time for availing ourselves of the work of Jesus as our high priest. I want to thank thee so much that we do have a high priest who is an elder brother as Brother Gregory pointed out last night, we are thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus. And I pray that we may understand it more, both in relation to the cross and to the ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. I pray that we would understand these things in a way not only that would attract our hearts and draw us closer to Thee, but in a way that we could share with others that would be clear, that would be decisive, and would bring the working of Thy Spirit to the hearts of many. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.